I was fascinated by both readings this morning, um, in particular this time, this week, because of what they have to say about, about the nature of God. Uh, so listen now for our second reading this morning and for God's word to you in the 32nd chapter of Exodus, beginning with the first verse. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron, Moses' brother, and said to him, Come, make God's little g for us, who shall go before us. As for Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what, is, what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on, your, on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your, and, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses up there on the top of the mountain, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. May the meditations of our hearts together upon this, your word, be acceptable and life-giving to us. In your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you visit the Kodajai Temple in Tokyo, Japan, there you will find a six-foot-four robot priest, an AI priest named Mindar, who will give you a 25-minute sermon on Heart Sutra. Mindar's ability to preach suggests a future which is not far away at all where artificial intelligence, AI, will broadly replace human leaders. Pretty soon, it's very possible, our annual meeting 
One of the most fun experiences every year for a pastor, you walk up and people vote on your salary, will be reduced to considering how we should upgrade to the new software of our pastors, our AI preacher. And that's all we'll have to do. No groceries, no mortgage, none of that. I think a lot of people would like to go into the settings, however, and adjust 25 minutes to 9 minutes, something like that. But that's all we'll have to do down the road. People who hear this six-foot-four AI priest, Mindar, preach are always pretty amazed. One woman who heard him once said, there was, it was amazing, but there was no heart or soul in it. A Lutheran pastor who visited Japan and heard the AI priest, Mindar, said he was amazing and, and pleasantly surprised at how well it worked, but he still felt Mindar, the AI preacher, lacked emotion or spirituality. And a woman who studies technology uh, and the ethics of technology thinks artificial intelligence could and should be used uh, to bring religious services and experience to people who couldn't otherwise access, access them. But however, she says, the challenge I see is that AI, artificial intelligence, is, very, is so human-like that it's easy to be deceived by it. How many of you have built a relationship up, for example, with Alexa? Anybody ever argue with her, get mad at her? I do. It's easy to be deceived. Well, let's talk about that. Deception like that, of course, is as old as the human story, and it doesn't really have anything to do with computers. We think we can build that tower all the way to heaven, that tower of Babel. We think we can achieve, accomplish, think our way through pretty much anything, that we can code our way all the way to God. It's a natural part of every human story, including individual humans, as well as the story of humankind. We do take giant steps, don't we? Just before this service, I was shown a sort of, I can't even describe this thing in Las Vegas. It's like this dome that projects and changes shape around you as you're watching, you know, amazing bands play and it's all sort of an illusion, but it's not an illusion, and it's all the result of human ingenuity and advancement and an intellect. Um, but it can only go so far, I think, and I try not to say that as a get-off-my-lawn kind of old person, but rather is that it's the same old story, right? At the end of these roads, these roads of accomplishment and achievement and advancement, uh, we realize that we've seen the enemy, and the enemy is us. For 116 years, we've advanced and improved for the most part. Uh, the sound system in this church, while it might not be perfect, it's a lot better than the one that was here when I got here. We are now live streaming. COVID forced us to do that. We should have been doing it before. Um, we have a lot of digitally literate people in this congregation. Why we weren't doing it, I don't know. We got kind of into a little bit of a 100 and whatever, 13, 14-year-old rut. Um, we've made all these changes, but a couple of things never change. The first thing that never changes is that we, the authors of these advancements, we're not perfect. I am, newsflash, not perfect. Um, 
And second, and this is what's in, in the, in, interesting in the two scripture readings today, from Mark, this really interesting passage which only Mark has. Remember, the, the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years touched his cloak, and Mark is bold enough to say that Jesus, the Son of God, didn't know who touched him. Jesus has to react in that situation, and it really unfolds in quite a, an amazing way. He is supposed to be going to heal one woman, young girl who's at the point of death, but then this other woman touches him. He's not sure who she is. He takes the time to figure out who it is that touched him. He goes and heals her, and by the time he gets to the first little girl, she has it's all this sort of interruption and change, and Jesus responds, and it's flexible, and the way and will of God holds sway somehow. In our text from Exodus, Moses pleads and argues with God. Moses implores God. And did you see God changes God's mind? I tell my students at seminary uh, who are preparing to learn how to lead worship that probably the most important sermon you can preach on Sunday morning is your facial expression when something goes wrong. Right? You can talk about love and peace and joy all day, but if the organist plays over you when you're trying to say something, and you give them a dirty look, it undoes everything. People see that, right? It, it's our flexibility can mimic and reflect God's flexibility with us. Our passage this morning reads, when the people came, when the people saw that Moses was long, taking too long and coming down from the mountain, they said, let us make our own gods. And Aaron said, we'll take all your earrings off and let's melt all that gold down. And they make this golden calf because they don't know where Moses is. They don't know what has happened to him. And they'd much rather have an idol, something to worship that they can manage and see and control and count on in the way that they expect to count on. And this brings me to the first insight I get from this familiar passage in Exodus, Exodus 32. Our need to control and manage things keeps us far from God. And not only that, because it keeps us far from God, our need to control and manage things and predict things and be comfortable with things can threaten our very existence. And if you look at the state of the church overall in this country and around the world, you can see that reality playing out in so many places. This church, its vitality, its growth, its health, we are increasingly an outlier in a mainline Protestant world that is shrinking. And I would argue, it's not the only reason, but one of the big reasons is that a lot of churches did what a lot of human beings do. They tried to kind of keep it predictable and safe and that's the biggest recipe for a quick death that I can think of. Think about those people waiting for Moses on top of that mountain. Think about the times that you have waited for something that you thought or for someone you thought you really needed. You couldn't go on without it. had to work out. The acceptance from that college and you wait and you wait. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's reassurance from someone with whom you're in a relationship. You wait and you wait and the phone doesn't ring. The email doesn't come. The text doesn't come back. No car pulls into the driveway. And increasingly, like the people at the foot of the mountain, there at Mount Sinai, you go to pieces. 
We are not so different from those people so many years ago, are we? We want to make sure that our peace of mind is as secure as our retirement portfolio. We don't like to have to trust something we can't see or can't control or can't manage. So we keep attaching who we are and what makes us happy to our own plans, our own efforts, our own strivings. And a lot of times, like the golden calf, they're pretty shiny at first. But eventually they end up empty. Amen. Technology at work. There's God now. God says to Moses, get back down there. Your people are misbehaving. I am miffed. Your, my people have been quick to turn aside from all the ways of liberty and happiness and fulfillment that I have provided for them. Therefore, hold my beer. I'm going to wipe them out. And it's fascinating. Don't skip by this. This says a lot about the Christian, Judeo-Christian God. Moses argues with God here and says, no, don't do this. And God relents. God changes God's mind. And Moses goes back down the mountain. He's not happy, but the people survive, and they go on. Now, I don't know if God really changes God's mind. I would be presumptuous to tell you that I do. Who can know the mind of God? It's elsewhere in Scripture. What I do know is that God's people, the congregation that is our ancestor, that's how they understood and tell their own story. They recognize in telling their story there at the base of Mount Sinai that they made a major mistake by shifting their trust into something that they could manage and control and make themselves. And what they found out with this God who was flexible and willing to find them and us, no matter what we do, is what we hope that Ellie and Kenzie will find out and know deep within their hearts as they go through life, that God who loves them will find God's way back to them. Wherever they go, we cannot throw a wrench into God's plans that God can't respond to out of love. God's love is too big for that. Whatever guilt or shame or regret that might be holding you down or weighing you down or keeping you back, God's big enough for any of that. God will find you. Those are the results of turning back to God. God's, God says, if you turn back to me, you will live. What does it mean to turn back to God? I want to conclude with this notion. I grew up in the Baptist church. Turning back to God meant getting saved. meant accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But I think there's more to it than that, right? And I think it's more than just going to church or being a good parent or being a good person. Turning back to God is a hard thing to do because the first part of it is to face our need, our limitation, the truth that we can't do it alone. I want my kids, my kids, and my church kids to understand that, that we have limitations, we have uh, weaknesses that are built into who we are, and it's okay. I think part of the sickness that so many of the modern kids have is that the world tells them they're not supposed to have any weaknesses or faults. 
We have to face our need. The second step in turning back to God is that we have to trust that in our need, in our weakness, in our humanness, God never abandons us. And then finally, the third step is to let that experience, which is a scary experience, to be vulnerable, to face who we really are, while we're trusting at the same time that God, if no one else is going to show up, we know that God will, is to let that experience make us strong. Not to generate strength on our own, but to let the experience of being vulnerable, facing our need, and trusting that God will keep God's promises to us, let that experience make us strong. That is what turning back to God means. We've been doing it here in this congregation and in so many other places around this planet, this globe, for 116 years here, turning back again and again to the God who will never abandon us. Here's what I mean by that as I conclude. When I was in, in college, uh, my friends sometimes when we would go out would bet people at the bar or a restaurant, not, I mean they forced me to go to these places, I didn't want to go, uh, that I, like a little bit of a, like a parlor trick, that I could remember the third and fourth verses to songs from the 1970s, which weren't that far away back in the 1980s. Uh, I just had that ability back then. I had a better memory than I do now. I would go into my room as a little kid and record songs off the radio on my cassette deck, and I would play them over and over again, and I would make sure I could remember all the words before I moved on to the next song. And it came in handy in college. It made me friends. Right? I would, uh, people would bet that I didn't know the third verse to Seasons in the Sun or, um, uh, let's see, pick any Donny Osmond song you want to, those kind of things, right? Uh, the Carpenters. Today, I, I sort of morphed into rediscovering artists or discovering them for the first time, even though they've been there all along. So in recent years, beginning in COVID, it's John Prine, Linda Ronstadt, I was always a fan of Linda Ronstadt, uh, Nancy Griffith, and most recently, just this past week, this amazing artist who died about 10 years ago named Jesse Winchester. Anybody ever heard of One of the most prolific songwriters, many famous uh, rock and pop singers, folk singers, sing his songs. Jesse Winchester, as a young man, went to Canada, Canada to avoid the Vietnam the draft for the Vietnam War, and in doing so, hurt his career, especially as a solo artist, Greatly, that's probably why I've never heard of them. But he's incredible. Um, voice and lyrics. Um, and here is a song called That's What Makes You Strong by Jesse Winchester, which describes this constant experience of journeying with God, of facing who we are, and, and trusting that who we are is a big and important part of our story, but it's not the whole story. Because who God is, is the other half of our story. Here are the words, the lyrics to That's What Makes You Strong. I wish I could sing it like him. If you love somebody, then that means you need somebody. And if you need somebody, that's what makes you weak. But if you know you're weak, and you know you need someone, oh, it's a funny thing. That's what makes you strong. That's what makes you strong. That's what gives you power. That's what lets the meek come sit beside the king. That's what lets us smile 
in our final hour. That's what moves our souls, and that's what makes us sing. Amen. Please pray with me. Loving God, we ask you to be with us as we seek to journey with you and to turn back again and again to you, not just on Sunday mornings, but every moment of our lives by trusting your love for us as we face who we really are and then celebrating who we really are because of your love for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.